Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask now for your word to go forth, to give you glory, to exalt your name, to show Christ. We pray for light. We pray that your words would be unfolded, that they would give light, they'd give heat, they would impart understanding to us of how to obey you more, of how to savor Christ even more. Father, it's in your name that we pray that our hearts would be ready to receive your word as food. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Ask yourself if these names sound familiar. Spider-Man, Iron Man, Black Panther, Batman, Storm, Wolverine, The Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Wonder Woman. I see some smiles on faces as I say those names. Those aren't the kind of names you name your children. uh, But those are the names that are saturated in our pop culture, are they not, in America? What's interesting about superheroes... Some of you are like, I could care less about superheroes. Others of you are highly excited right now that a sermon is beginning to talk about superheroes. Whether you like superheroes or not, have you ever thought about what unites every single superhero? They all wear different outfits and costumes and clothing. They all fight different villains. They all have different powers. But there's a common thread that unites the fiction, and it's this. When things spin out of control and all looks bleak and hopeless, the hero, in stunning surprise and ability, somehow rises up and defeats the enemy, restoring order from the evil and the chaos. And here's what's often missed by our culture. That theme that unites them all, our culture didn't come up with it. That's a biblical theme. That's a biblical impulse for people made in God's image to crave seeing something of of disaster, imminent danger, and yet someone or something rises up and defeats it. Some kind of hope of deliverance. It's a theme that God designed in the Scriptures. So why are we talking about superheroes? Because that's kind of what it feels like when you parachute down into the book of Judges. It feels like an installment of of superheroes, it's like vignettes describing superheroes. I want to invite you to turn there with me now. Turn to Judges chapter 3. This is on page 202 in the Bible under the seat in front of you. The book of Judges. We'll consider what God has for us in not one but two of these heroic uh, accounts this morning. We're going to be reading about Ehud and Shamgar. Uh, This is a very gruesome account. I just want to warn you. It's gruesome. It's kind of graphic. Uh, It's detailed. And then the other hero, Shamgar, it's just going to be one verse. You're going to miss it if you don't pay attention to the final verse of this passage. Um, But my prayer for us as we, we read this and we get ready to hear God's word is that we won't think that our Lord is boring, that his deliverance is always so predictable but that God's deliverance comes in the most unlikely ways to his undeserving people for his glory alone. So let's, let's read together. Judges chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12. 
and go to the end of the chapter. Judges chapter 3, 12 through 31. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber, closed them behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So Ehud and Shamgar, judge number two and judge number three, as we're unfolding this book of Judges, it was Othniel last week. These judges aren't just sitting in a courtroom, banging a gavel, hearing legal cases. Judge, in this context, is a military might. It's a leader who would go and subdue Israel's enemies. 
But here we have a a stealthy, left-handed secret agent and a mysterious country farmer from the middle of nowhere. They both judged Israel's enemies. The deliverance they provide here is real, but the oddity of how it comes about is just as strange. So why would we spend some time on January 20th, 2019, looking at these stories? I mean, of all the places in the Scriptures we could go. Two brief reasons. One, the Scriptures tell us that these stories are not just for our entertainment. They're not just for our curiosity. The Scriptures tell us, in Romans 15.4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we're supposed to learn something from this passage. We're supposed to be encouraged and have hope. But another reason, secondly, Jesus Christ himself is exalted through this passage. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 24 that we should read all of the Bible as pointing to and finding fulfillment in him. Luke chapter 24. So Jesus wants us to be on the hunt, on the lookout, for themes or promises or ways of deliverance that would actually point to him in this passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So what's the point here? What's what's the main point? If we were to capture the main flavor, the main idea of, of what we just read, here it is. Here's the main point. God is mighty to save in surprising ways by using deep irony in the deliverance of his undeserving people. All for his glory. If you want a shorthand phrase, just write down, God is mighty to save in surprising ways. The more robust definition there would be, he uses deep irony in surprising ways for the deliverance of his undeserving people for his glory. In other words, God's not boring. God's not so predictable that you you might think, oh, I always know what God's going to do next. God is stunningly creative and surprising in how he saves his people, how he gets glory to himself. It doesn't mean that there's not a pattern to his deliverance, that it's always so random. No, it's always within his good, excellent, perfect, holy character. And yet within that, The specific details are so creative, so wise, so humorous at times. What a God we serve. The structure here of this passage, uh, two accounts, two judges, one detailed and one super, super short. Almost like a little footnote. Minimal detail. And my aim this morning is to unfold each of these stories. So obviously we'll spend more time with Ehud and less time with Shangar but to unfold this story and point to Christ. And to do that, the way we can unlock this narrative is to use the biblical tool of irony. Biblical irony. So biblical irony, it's it's not what you might first think of. Biblical irony is highlighting a difference between what seems to be the case or what's expected to be the case in relationship to what actually turns out to be the case. So this is not the modern notion of irony always equals funny. 
That's, that's not how the Bible uses irony. Um, our modern notion of funny or humor can overlap with irony, but it doesn't have to. In the Bible, irony can fall on the spectrum of extremely serious, ironic things to, yes, humorous, funny situations, which we'll see today. When I was thinking this week and preparing, okay, how could I give you just a, a short, crisp example of biblical irony? It would be this. The Apostle Paul, before he became an apostle, his name was Saul. He was on the road to Damascus to kill and persecute and drag away Christians. He hated them. And on that very road, he became a Christian. That's irony. Completely serious irony. I asked Samuel this week, we were in the office, uh, Samuel, what would you think of an example of biblical irony? Without missing a beat, the drop of a hat, he said, that moment where they put a sign over Jesus on the cross that said, King of the Jews. How ironic. They thought, we're going to mock him. Yeah, he's sure he's a king. When in reality, he was a king. The king. So the Bible is filled with irony. We don't want to miss it. It helps us perceive what's happening. And in this passage today, I want to point out to you several aspects of irony. Each one of them will be a point to the sermon. So the first point that we want to see here is the ironic setting. The ironic setting. And here it is in a nutshell. Here's the irony captured in a phrase. Israel rejects strength in God. Israel rejects strength in God. So God strengthens their enemies. Israel refuses to be strong in the Lord, so the Lord gives his strength to their enemies. What a bitter irony. Look again with me at verse 12 there. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the Lord. So it's not surprising here that Israel does wickedness. That they did evil, that's a common theme and refrain in the book. But what is surprising is God's response. He doesn't send a plague amongst the people. He doesn't raise up a prophet who starts speaking the word to them. What does he do there? That sharp irony. He uses another nation marked by even more wickedness to give his strength to. Moab, this was Israel's enemy. They were a perverse, ungodly nation. Their people originated from that incestual situation between Abraham's nephew Lot, so Lot and his two daughters. That's where Moab arises from in Genesis 19. And the Moabites made their dwelling on the other side of the Dead Sea, but now they're coming around the Dead Sea and invading the Promised Land and taking over God's people. They take even the city of Palms right there in verse 13. That's Jericho. It's another name for Jericho. And this is all happening because Moab is being raised up as an instrument in God's hands to judge and to punish. See how this is proven. Look again at verse 12. Look at how the verse is bookended. It starts with, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at the end of verse 12. They had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's, that's crystal clear. And then notice that sandwiched phrase right in between it. 
And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Why? Because Israel had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel was not expecting this. This was a bitter irony. But it's all God's design. Previously, they had been in servitude eight years. This time, it's 18 years. They wouldn't have anticipated this bitter irony. All of this unexpectedness of sin and how God works to punish raises an interesting point for us. And it's this. Sin's consequences are greater than our immediate sight. Why they didn't cry out to God earlier, we don't know. Perhaps their hearts were hardened. But 18 years go by. There's this hardening effect greater than their previous prediction of what the consequences would be. Sinning against God has ripple effects more severe than previously thought about. Do you know this truth to be true? Have you experienced this in your own life? Can you give testimony to this truth that sinful attitudes and activity against the Lord in rebellion of Him stings you, hurts more than you would have foreseen? Even the fact of, I'm going to sin and I'm going to turn to God later. Sin has a hardening effect. They didn't turn to the Lord immediately after sinning against Him. Eighteen years go by. So it's good and right for Christians to meditate on how consequential sin is. It's good to warn each other and to bring up the, the topic of sin. One of the ways that our church has a special opportunity today is in our members meeting, we're going to have the opportunity to hear about God's beautiful design for church discipline. What a way to warn us, brothers and sisters, against sin and its damaging effects. We're going to hear from a brother share about repentance. There's some bitter irony in his story. I hope you'll make time to come today. It's one of the ways we can warn each other against the deceitfulness of sin. This bitter irony here that God strengthened a pagan nation, it's not just a generic strengthening, it's just Moab. There's a name given, isn't there? Eglon, verse 12. So secondly, first we have this ironic setting. Secondly, notice the ironic characters in this biblical account. Ironic characters. We've got King Eglon. The other man's name is Ehud. And here's the irony, if you want to capture it in a phrase, of the ironic characters. Here's the irony. King Eglon is pictured as a fattened calf ready for slaughter. I'm going to show you how I got that. King Eglon is a fattened calf ready for slaughter, and Ehud is an unlikely hero from an ironic place and time. Here's what I mean by that. Look, look with me in verse 15. Let's see this. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So that's kind of odd that, that we'd get that detail. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. He bound it on his right thigh under his clothes And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. So the descriptions of these characters, their name, 
and something about them is ironic. The one ruling over Israel at this time, he's no longer a military powerhouse who can run around and swing a sword and chase after people. He's extremely obese. He's not running around anywhere. He can't run fast. He's a fat guy. And King Eglon wasn't just fat. The inspired text of God tells us what about him. He was very fat. And here's why this is ironic. This Jabba the Hutt type character. It's ironic because his name, Eglon, means calf-like. Like a bull, like a calf. So we have this very fat bull calf. And what did you do at this day and age with an extremely fat livestock? You slaughtered it, killed it. What irony. So Israel's in servitude to this fattened calf. They're bringing tribute to him, taxes, payments. And guess what that might be? It's food, grain offerings. That's the antagonist. What about the protagonist here? Well, he's ironic too. Here's, he's the hero. Look again in verse 15. Ehud, son of Gera, Benjaminite, a left-handed man. No one is expecting this guy. And here's why. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, the people of Benjamin, that was the first tribe to have that big letdown where they didn't drive out the peoples. They're the first tribe mentioned of just completely falling short. So nobody's expecting anything to come out of Benjamin. And especially this fellow, Ehud. Because his skillful right hand is debilitated. When it says a left-handed man, that literally reads that his hand in the right hand is bound up or restricted in his right hand. That's ironic because Benjaminite, that means son of the right hand. So, the author is telling us, one from the tribe of Benjamin, in other words, one from the tribe of son of the right hand, is a man with a beat up, bound, restricted right hand. That's the guy the Lord raises up. When the people cry out for a deliverer, this is who the Lord raises up. Do you see the irony in this? For a warrior at this time, that would be a major weakness, to have your right hand hindered. So the Lord raises up this most unlikely deliverer, and he puts it in his heart to strike down King Eglon. We see Ehud there making his own custom weapon. So what's the plan? What's this unlikely hero going to do with this custom-made weapon? Well, he thinks ahead. Now, I remember one time when I had a weapon on my person, but I didn't know it, and I didn't think ahead about it. Uh, This was shortly after 9-11. It was the first time I was going on an airline flight. I was actually going to New York. And I had never thought about the security check clearance before. And I didn't have mom and dad to pack my bags for me. So what did I do? I packed my suitcase. But then I grabbed my backpack that I normally have for school and stuffed some other papers in it. And in that backpack, there was a little pair of Fisker's scissors at the bottom of it. And we all go through the check line, and I'm the one guy who has that red security light start flashing. I get frisked in front of all my buddies there, and then they pull out this little dinky pair of scissors. And I'm now the joke for the rest of the trip, because I didn't think ahead 
about something that could be used as a weapon. Since that time, I've always packed carefully for trips. But here, Ehud thinks ahead very carefully with something that is a weapon. Very carefully. So this brings us to the third point, an ironic encounter. An ironic encounter. If you want to capture this in a phrase, it would be this. A thoughtful, clean mission turns into an unexpected, smelly mess. A thoughtful, clean mission turns into an unexpected, smelly mess. What a covert operation this is, kind of like a double-O agent. To see the irony of what plays out here, we have to see how carefully crafted the mission was. It was squeaky clean. It was clever. It was quiet. Ehud determined, I'm going to make contact with this king, and I'm going to hide my weapon. You know, most right-handed people would have their sword on the left. The bodyguards would check that side. Remember, this guy's got kind of a messed up right hand. So he hides it on the left, under his clothing, not on the outside. The secret dagger, if you will. A little bit longer than a pocket knife, a little bit shorter than a huge sword. Perfect. He straps it on his, on his thigh. And it seems like he hasn't told anyone his plan because he brings tribute, gives the tribute, everything seems quiet, walks away. Wasn't that his opportunity? He was right there with the king. He walks away, sends the others back. He turns around at the idols of Gilgal, pagan worship. And he goes back and says to the king, I've got a message for you. See that in verse 19? Verse 19, I have a secret message for you, O king. Wonder how often the king had heard that before. So everyone leaves to give them space for this secret message, and they're in the cool roof chamber. This would be that shaded roof area, most comfortable in the heat. It's got a nice breeze, air circulates there. Remember, no AC, no air conditioning at this time. And they find themselves in the king's cool roof chamber, and they're not there just to lounge and relax and enjoy conversation. Eglon's on the edge of his seat. He thinks it's going to be another morsel of sweetness to gobble down and relish some secret message. But Ehud's crisp plan shows even more when he says, look at verse 20. It's not just a secret message. Verse 20, I have a message from God for you. It's like the author, the Holy Spirit, divinely slows down the footage here of the scene and gives us a play-by-play in slow motion. I have a message from God for you. But here's where that clean, airtight plan gets really messy. Ehud reached with his left hand. That's the only hand he can use. He reaches with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt, the end of the sword, also went in after the blade. So he he thrust extremely hard into this guy. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And, if you ever thought, why didn't God just stop right there? There's a detail here that we need to know, because it contributes to the irony. And, end of verse 22 there, and the dung came out. 
That's disgusting. That's gruesome. From my days of working in a local hospital during college, I thought about this moment from a medical perspective here. My curiosity kind of colored the situation. And I thought, why didn't King Eglon scream out in pain and alert everyone and this plan get ruined? And then I thought about it. You know, he wasn't stabbed in the heart, but in truth, if a person is stabbed in the abdomen, if the angle is right, the abdominal aorta is severed, or that inferior vena cava would be sliced apart. Two massive paths of blood flow. So that person would immediately pass out from the the blood pressure change and the internal bleeding. But the text tells us that this well-crafted plan is now ironically messy. Messy is an understatement. The dung came out. So now he's lost his weapon. His sword has been swallowed up in King Eglon. And he can't reach back in there and find his sword and get it and pull it back out. He's stepping away because the dung came out. How nasty this scene. But God is still at work within the mess. God is still at work here within this mess, this grime, this filth. Ehud didn't panic at the dung oozing and his weapon being lost, but he kept trusting. I don't know about you, what kind of tangle of anxiety and mess and stress and pressure you're under. But there's at least one small lesson to learn right here, is there not? Our messes in our lives do not stop God's plans from moving forward. They don't stop them. God is working deeper than the messy situations we're in. Not just on the surface, but he's actually working through them to bring about his good plans. Back to the scene for a moment here. How ironic that this pristine plan has now gotten dirtier than he ever would have predicted. He predicted and planned to stab the king, okay? He did not predict what was going to come out of the king. That's, that's the ironic part. But this stench, imagine how smelly that would be. This stench actually provides a blanket of cover. It's a sweet smell, if you think about it. There's a purpose to this strange turn of unplanned events. So fourthly, consider the ironic escape. Fourthly, an ironic escape. If you want to capture the irony here in a word, you could say this. A smell normally not pleasant is the perfect aroma providing escape. A smell not normally pleasant at all, ever, except for this situation, provides the perfect aroma for escape. Look, look with me at verse 24, this ironic escape. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. I mean, honestly, how long do you have to wait for someone till you get to the point of embarrassment? If you're on a road trip, people take a restroom break. You've got a certain schedule you've got to keep. But you can wait for something unexpected. 
If you're in the comfort of someone's own home, maybe you wait a little bit longer. If the person is more important than you, you wait. What parent would let their children rush them? Come on, Mom and Dad, we've got to go. No, I've got to use the bathroom. The one who's in higher authority is the one who gets to determine how long everybody else waits. And God gives us this humorous occasion because here we have a king, the highest in command. Nobody's going to rush him. And he's in the comfort of his own place. God gave us this humorous occasion. They waited to the point of embarrassment. They waited. They could wait and wait. And then, and then they start to smell what had just taken place. They think he's using the bathroom. God gives us this occasion because our creator has a sense of humor at times. Psalm 2 tells us, He who sits in the heavens laughs at those who would rival his glory. So they waited to the point of embarrassment here. This is a laugh-worthy moment in the Old Testament. The irony here is that the longer they wait, the more courtesy time they give is actually a courtesy to their enemy for his escape. It's going to bring about their death. Sometimes laughter, here's the point, sometimes laughter is an excuse not to take something seriously, but other times it's there because you do take something seriously. I like how Oz Guinness, a quote in this book called Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion, he said, Suppose that a youth laughs at an elderly woman or a crippled child crossing the street. This is heartless. It doesn't take humanity rightly. But then he says, Suppose the amusement, if you were to witness a pompish politician, slipping on a banana peel on the way up to receive an empty and undeserved accolade. The first case would only remind us of everyday suffering in the world. The second case would encourage us to see through the foibles and pretensions of human power and take it less seriously. So there's this intimate relationship between humor and faith. Both deal with the incongruities of life. So here's the conclusion on this this irony here. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes we must laugh in order to perceive. Sometimes we must laugh in order to perceive. Some of you, and I don't know which ones of you, some of you think to be really, really, really spiritual means I am serious all the time. I am always serious at all times. That's foolish. That's not like God. But some of you swing it way too far. Things are always a joke. Things are always casual. That's not like God either. Brothers and sisters, what you laugh at, what you find funny, what you laugh at, think about your week, your month, that actually reveals more about you and where you're at spiritually than you telling me what passage or Bible plan you're on. There are humorous things in this world You want to know what the biggest one is? Yourself. We are sinful creatures who mess things up all the time. This doesn't mean we laugh at our sin. That's not what I'm saying. But if you feel uptight under the stress and pressure of, I just haven't had a good laugh in a long time, 
start looking at yourself more closely or ask your friends and family. Start to perceive that there are things in life that are humorous because God orchestrates it that way. But it's not all funny. Look again there with me how 25 ends, verse 25. It ends in a gruesome sight. We come crashing back down to the seriousness of the situation. Verse 25 says this. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So what happens? What's the outcome? Well, fifthly, finally with this story, there's an ironic victory. Ironic victory. If you want to capture it in a phrase, here it is. Strong, able-bodied warriors taken down by weak, ragtag servants. Strong army taken down by weak Israelite servants. Verse 28. Look at verse 28. He said to them, Ehud, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they kill these Moabites. Verse 30, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. So these servants band together, and this resistance crushes the enemy. And Ehud makes clear there in verse 28, follow me because I'm so clever. No, he realizes the Lord has given you this victory. He gives credit to the Lord, just like when he spoke to the king and he said, I have a message from God for you. The Lord is acting to save. And then immediately on the heels of this account, we switch gears and we see Shamgar. So here's the last point of irony. Number six, and finally, there's an ironic deliverance. Ironic deliverance in both of these stories. And here it is, if you want to capture this phrase. Shamgar's deliverance is ironic because the Philistines take all the weapons, but they overlook this farming tool, this farming equipment. The Philistines take all the weapons, but they overlook this farming tool. And I know that's not in verse 31, but I want to show you how I got that because it comes from the scriptures, okay? So look with me at verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. So we go from the stench of this cool roof chamber to just the smells of the field on a farm. And an unlikely hero there is raised up. How odd this mysterious judge, Shamgar. We only have one verse about his deliverance. There's no tribe mentioned of where he comes from. This is the shortest description in the whole book of any judge, the fewest words. Such little detail. But what we have here is so instructive to see the irony. Shamgar's deliverance is highlighting again this surprising way God delivers. Did you see the weapon that he used? The ox goad? The weapon is so ironic. The goad would be this long pointed stick for tending the livestock, for keeping them moving in the right way. A long pointed stick. So picture this thick wooden stick about six to eight feet long, sharply pointed at one end. Maybe that point is made out of iron. The other end might have been shaped kind of like a spade or been made of iron also to clean out a plow. This is farming equipment. 
but it keeps the animals moving along. So nobody's trying to harm and kill their animals with an ox goat, but they are trying to poke them into submission, keep them going, especially if they're lazy. It's a useful tool. This is why God's word says in Ecclesiastes 12.11 that the word of the Lord, it's like a goad. It spurs us on, keeps us going. But Shamgar's weapon here seems odd. Why is he using an ox goad and not a spear, a sword, an axe? Well, there's a clue. You don't have to turn there, but just hear this. The very next uh, section in Judges, Judges 5, verse 6 and 8, tell us that in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, the highways were abandoned, travelers kept to the byways. No shield or spear was to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. The Philistines took all the weapons. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 19, we're told that the Philistines prevented Israel from even having blacksmiths. So Israel would have to go to the Philistines to get their tools sharpened, any object, any metal piece of equipment. So the Philistines take all the weapons, but the irony is they forgot this stick laying on the ground. And we don't know if Shamgar was ambushed, and all of a sudden he's ambushed and he just grabs the first thing he sees, or if the Philistines came and plundered his family, his possessions. But they forgot that piece of equipment. Either way we slice it, we see that this was an ironic deliverance. He killed 600 Philistines. And it's clear again that only the Lord's divine enablement could make this happen. In Judges 2 verse 18, we're told that the Lord is the one empowering these judges. I like how one commentator put it from a few centuries ago. He said, it's not a matter how weak the weapon is. If God direct the strength of the arm, an ox goad, when God pleases, shall do more than Goliath's sword. Sometimes he chooses to work by unlikely means. So neither Ehud nor Shamgar made excuses. They used what they had to have a weapon for God's kingdom. It's a lesson for us. We don't need to complain and be displeased about what we don't have. Use what you have now. Leverage that for the Lord. Even if it seems small and insignificant, the Lord can bring great surprising victory through it. So we have this ironic setting and characters and ironic encounters and escapes and victory, ironic deliverance. What's the point of all this? It's that God is not boring. If you think you know what God's going to say to you in a church service or when you read the Bible or when you talk to a Christian or for that matter, when you talk to anyone, you don't know. God surprises us. Believe that. But do more than just believe that. Love that. Do you love the fact that your God is not dull? If I were to ask you, hey, how is your walk with the Lord going this past week? Would it sound like he's a dull God by what you describe? In our sinfulness, we are often blind to how he works. We could even read a passage like this and think, well, this is just random and weird. But when we look closely, we see God's deliverance. God is mighty to save in surprising ways. But all of this is not just about us and what we can do. It's about Christ. 
This is about Jesus Christ, this passage. It's about the gospel. Does the aroma of the cross smell like deliverance to you? We'll close with this verse in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 tells us that God in Christ through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, spread the aroma as disgusting and and brutal as it seems to, to tell others about a man who hung naked bloody on a cross and then was put in a grave. That's not the whole story. He rose again. Don't be ashamed, though, to tell others about the cross, your family, your friends, your coworkers. That stench that someone who doesn't know the Lord would see when they hear that story, that becomes the aroma, the unexpected aroma of salvation to them when they see that Christ died for them. If you do not know Jesus this morning, you just came with a friend, Know that all the scriptures point to Christ. Know that, yes, it was gruesome, even disgusting to look at the cross where blood was shed. There were no bathrooms there. People spit upon Christ. All filth and disgust, but through that, that's a sweet aroma of salvation because that's God's wrath being poured out on someone. That's Christ taking your place, a substitution. If you'll turn away from your sin and you'll trust in that, trust that Jesus Christ died for you, then you can be saved from God's wrath. And just like He rose again, you can trust you're going to be risen again to eternal life with Christ because you're covered by Him. So turn from your sin now and trust in Him. Smell that aroma of the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to not be ashamed of your unlikely deliverance, the way you provide. Help us to be faithful in our evangelism. Help us to be expectant during the week of what you're going to tell us and what you're going to do. Lord, we thank you for the irony of how you've saved us. For all of us who do know you, we weren't expecting it the day salvation came. You are a good God who delivers in creative, wise ways. We praise you for your irony that points to your glory. Help us tell others about it. In Christ's name, amen.